Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. And we welcome all who are joining us for the Pastor's Bible Class, as we call it here. Uh, we welcome all those who are here in our gymnasium. And for those who are here, there are sheets over on the risers or on the benches over there that I uh, had the lessons printed out for you. We welcome also all those in the St. Louis area who are joining us on KFUO 8.50 a.m. And others could be around the world, I suppose, on KFUO.org, joining us online. Appreciate and glad to have you with us. We're going to be looking, as we usually do in this class, at the scripture lessons that will be assigned for next Sunday. So we'll be looking at the lessons that a lot of us will be hearing in church on November 22nd. I just want to say up front that this will be the last Sunday in the church year already coming up as Advent begins the following Sunday on the 29th of November. And there is a choice when you're at the last Sunday of the church year. You can either do the last Sunday of the church year, which is what we're doing, or there's a, you can do Christ the King Sunday. And those are separate readings. And we tend to alternate here at St. Paul's. Uh, we'll do Christ the King Sunday one year and last Sunday of the church year another time as well. So I just want to alert people that if you go to church next Sunday and your church is celebrating Christ the King Sunday, these will not be the readings that you'll be hearing, but if you're doing the last Sunday of the church here, these will be. So with that, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, as the church year comes to an end, we are drawn in your word to that time when all, all time here on earth will likewise come to an end when your son returns. We look forward to that day. We look forward to his return and being with you forever in your presence, thanks to what your son has already accomplished for us when he came the first time, offering his life as payment in full for our sin and for the sin of the world. We thank you also for your word, the Holy Scriptures, where you reveal to us things that we could never know by ourselves, but you have made known to us, especially life and salvation through your Son. Send your Holy Spirit to be with us now as we study that word that we might not only continue to grow in our knowledge and our understanding of that word, but be able to apply it also in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be looking at, uh, first of all, Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 through 16, and 20 through 24. They cut out a section in between. I wonder, when we, when we do that in church, when we read the scripture lessons and you see that there's a section missing, what's the first thing goes through your mind? I wonder, yeah, exactly. I wonder what's in that section that they cut out, right? And uh, in fact, today, the same, same thing had occurred in the Old Testament lesson. So anyway, we're looking at Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16, and 20 through 24. Then 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28, an entire chapter there in 1 Corinthians 15, dedicated to the bodily resurrection of the dead, physical resurrection. Then we're going to end up with Matthew 25, 31 through 46, and that is the return of Christ and the judgment, the separation of the sheep and the goats on the last day. So that's kind of where we're heading you will notice here a theme running through the readings, again, of the second coming of Christ, of judgment that's going to take place, and of course, as we said in the prayer, that judgment also for us includes everlasting life, that uh, physical bodily resurrection that we'll talk about, and everlasting life. So let's start with Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16. Now, to put this in a little bit of context for us, Ezekiel is very helpful in that he provides a lot of historical dates or occurrences in his book that helps us date exactly when he's writing. In fact, one of the most of, of all the Old Testament books that we can really pinpoint. And so we know that he wrote from 593 B.C. to 572 B.C., and right in the middle of that, 586 B.C., remember, is when the Babylonians came and overthrew the southern kingdom, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, carted a lot of God's people off uh, into uh, various parts of the empire. And so if we look at here, Ezekiel is sort of bridging on both sides and right in the middle of his writing is when this is actually going to occur. 
And again, God bringing judgment on his people because of their idolatry, their um, worshiping of false gods, their injustice and their oppression of one another, taking advantage of one another, uh, exploiting one another, which we're going to hear about in today's lesson. And finally, just their, their flat-out unbelief. And God had had enough. Remember, way back in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom already has fallen. God raised up Assyria to bring that judgment upon the northern kingdom. Now the south is going to face judgment as well by the Babylonians. And what we are going to see in uh, Ezekiel here, the first, first part of chapter 34, 1 through 10, God goes and, and prophesies against the shepherds of Israel. Now, who would be the shepherds of Israel? They would be the political and the religious leaders of the day who were exploiting the people, who were in it for their own gain. And I want to just read for you uh, Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 10. If you have a Bible, you can certainly turn to it uh, if you have a Bible at home. But just listen to what the, the, the way God just lays it to the shepherds of Israel at that time. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill, my sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And I'll stop there. That's just through verse 6, but you get the idea. God is just railing against the shepherds who basically, you know, instead of feeding the sheep, they're feeding off of the sheep, right? And the result is God's sheep are scattered. They, are, they, are, they have not been helped or led or fed or cared for by these shepherds, okay? So that's kind of the context. Now, in our lesson, in the Old Testament lesson that we have next Sunday, God, in, in effect, says, I am going to come and be a shepherd for my people. I'm going to do it personally myself. You shepherds have failed uh, miserably, and I myself am going to come and be the, the shepherd for my people and help my people. So let's take a look here. We'll go through Ezekiel 34. We'll start at verse 11 here. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Notice the emphasis there. I, I didn't count how many times through these verses God is going to say, I am going to do this. In other words, it's addressed in the first person. And notice right in verse 11 how emphatic that is. I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. So what God will do. 12, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. God's people had been scattered, in a sense also, uh, even physically scattered, first of all, into different parts of the Babylonian Empire when God brought this judgment, but also spiritually speaking, God's people were scattered. They no longer were, were with their shepherd. They were away from him. And God says he is going to come himself and bring together his flock and care for his flock that have been scattered. Um, and uh, well, well, go on. The, the day of clouds and thick darkness is again, I think we did this two weeks ago, is a reference again to the divine presence. 
Uh, up on Mount Sinai, for example, when God is there giving the Ten Commandments and Moses is there, there's a big cloud and thick darkness, and God is, is booming out from that cloud. So again, this idea of God coming himself, the divine presence, to, to uh, gather his sheep and care for his sheep on the last day. And I will bring that, uh, verse 13, and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. So again, notice how God's people even physically are scattered all over. And God is going to bring them together. And I will bring them into their own land. So again, bring them back home, you might say. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in the, all the inhabited places of the country. In other words, you, you, you put those together, you've got just about every place there is, right? You've got the mountains, you've got the ravines, you've got the, uh, the, the settled places in the cities. In other words, every place God brings them, he is going to feed them. And they will be nurtured by him, no matter where they are, even up on the mountains. There will be, uh, and again, this is sort of a figurative way of speaking about it, but there will be nourishment for them. Uh, 14, I will feed them with good pasture. On the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. By the way, what, uh, what famous psalm kind of echoes in the background as you read through these verses? Psalm 23, yeah, yeah. Right, with these, these uh, lush pastures, right? And feeding them, right? So, uh, again, you can kind of hear that, that echoing of Psalm 23 and the shepherd-sheep sort of thing. Um, verse 14, I will feed them with good pasture on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. Uh, when sheep lie down... Is that, is that signifying that uh, they're scared and in danger or that they're just the opposite? Just the opposite, sure. They have nothing to fear. They can lie down. They don't have to fear any predators are going to come and attack them. So just another way of speaking about God as a shepherd, like a good shepherd, would be guarding his sheep and keeping predators at bay and away from the sheep, so also God will do that. So no more Assyria, no more Babylon. No more worries of that sort. They will be lying down. Um, verse 15, I myself, here we go again, will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. Verse 16, I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. Now, the first portions there are helpful things that a shepherd, again, would do for his sheep. The fat and the strong I will destroy. We think that's a reference to people who are, again, exploiting God's people. They've become fat. They've become uh, uh, wealthy, exploiting other people. And God says, you know, again, there will be judgment for them on the last day when I come. Okay? Uh, I will feed them in justice, or I will mete out justice, you might say, on that day. All right, then we skip some verses here, and we go to verse 20, but continues with the same sort of thing. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, to the oppressors, Behold, I, here we go again, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Fat sheep, again, would be the oppressors. Lean sheep would be those who are oppressed, probably, right? The uh, poor and downtrodden, and uh, it's going to be interesting. Here we get the, the uh, sort of the fat sheep and the lean sheep. When we get to the gospel lesson, we're going to get the sheep, or the goats and the sheep, kind of the same sort of thing, okay? Separation in two different uh, camps here. Uh, verse 21, why is he going to, you know, uh, uh, judge between the fat and the lean. Verse 21, because you, the oppressors, push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. That's kind of a, just an image here. Let's, let's picture that you've got, you've got the sheep and they're, they're going to be drinking 
here at a, at a, at a uh, brook. And you've got the fat ones who come and push with shoulder and so on, push the, the lean ones away. It's just another way of looking at how they were oppressing the poor and the downtrodden and the needy. It's just an image of, of uh, animals doing that, thrusting with side and shoulder and uh, the weak with your horns till you've scattered them. 22, I will rescue my flock and shall no longer, and they shall no longer be a prey. Notice there he speaks of it as my flock, his, his people. Uh, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd. Here comes a promise now. My servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now twice in these last verses, in verse uh, 21, uh, two, uh, sorry, verse 23 and verse 24, who is mentioned there by name? David is mentioned. Now, there's, a, there's one problem here. David's come and gone. He's about 400 years uh, earlier. Uh, so, who do you think is talked about? Who, who is prophesied about there? If it's not David, Jesus. It'd be David's greater son, the one that's going to come from the house and lineage of David. And he is going to be the one shepherd for God's people. In other words, you're not going to have a north and a south anymore. There aren't going to be 12 different tribes. There's going to be one shepherd and one collection, you might say, of God's people. And so we would say there's about, I guess, almost three ways that this, that this prophecy is fulfilled. You've got, first of all, God is going to restore his people and bring them back from their captivity in Babylon. That's going to happen. Cyrus is going to be the king of Persia. He is going to defeat the Babylonians. He's going to issue the Edict of Cyrus in 538 B.C., and God's people are going to be allowed to come back home, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and so on. So that's kind of one fulfillment, but an even greater fulfillment is the one we were just talking about, where Jesus is going to come, be sent by God. And remember, what did Jesus say he came to do? Seek and save that which was lost, right? Again, this idea of the lost sheep of God, he is going to come and find them and be their shepherd. He, of course, refers to himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, right? And so, in John chapter 10. Uh, and then finally, there's uh, yet a fulfillment yet to come, isn't there? When Christ returns on the last day and gathers all his people from all nations, from all over the world together, and again, is our shepherd on that last day. And that's what we'll be talking about when we get into, especially the gospel lesson, a little bit later on. Okay? So there are those, there are those probably three uh, different uh, fulfillments of that. Now, let's, let's just talk for a moment. We talked about false shepherds who don't lead their people well at all. Do we have false shepherds today? Even with, I'm not talking politically, so to speak, but let's just talk about within the church. Let's just talk religiously. I don't want to get into a political uh, uh, debate here. But do we have false shepherds in the church today? Yeah. And um, what, in what ways are some shepherds false shepherds? What makes them false shepherds? Anybody? Very good, yes. They're not teaching the Bible the way it is to be taught. In other words, not teaching the truth from God's Word, teaching something other than the truth, right? And um, again, we're not going to be singling anybody out, but you can certainly find preachers today who will preach, for example, there is the prosperity gospel that uh, God intends for you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and the only reason you're not is because you don't have enough faith. You just need to, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and believe. And you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Um, many times it's the, it's the preacher who ends up uh, wealthy uh, in those cases. But, you know, nowhere in, the, nowhere in the scriptures do we find a guarantee that because we're a Christian, 
you know, we're, our bank account's going to grow, we're going to have a huge house, we're going to drive a very expensive car, and so on. There, there's nowhere in the scriptures. In fact, just the opposite. Jesus talks about, take up your cross and follow me, right? That's not, not a very uh, uh, popular uh, way to go at it, I suppose, today. Uh, you can find preachers that will talk about uh, focused, it, it seems, just focused on this life in this world. And uh, again, God wants you to have the best life you possibly can here. And they define the best life, not in terms of spiritual things, but in terms of, you know, a promotion at work and, and all, all kinds of things. And that it almost seems like that's God's purpose is to make you more prosperous and successful uh, here in this, in this world. Um, it, you can absolutely turn on the television or turn on radio and hear preachers in a sermon never once mention the cross or sin or forgiveness or eternal life, and, but are talking about everything else under the sun. And many times it is their own opinions that they are putting forth, almost like a, um, a theological pop psychology that, that they're you know, putting out there today. And uh, again, people do not, uh, should not come to church to hear what the pastor thinks about things. They should come to hear the word of God, right, correctly put forth, and not, not what the pastor thinks about economics or politics or anything else, okay? Um, you know, uh, we could spend a lot of time on this, but going through the scriptures, it is plain to see that shepherds of God's people are held to a higher standard. Uh, Hebrews 13 talks about, says there, obey your leaders. I think it's around verse 7. Obey your leaders as ones who have to give an account. And so on the last day, uh, it, it seems like we will be held to giving an account. 1 Timothy 3 talks about the standards for one who would serve as an overseer, or today we would say as a pastor. And they are high standards, uh, if you read through verses 1 through 7. Uh, remember how, how um, Jesus, remember how serious Jesus was about someone who would lead one of his little ones astray. Remember what he said about them? It would be better that they had a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea than leading one of those little ones astray. And you know... Um, just a couple weeks ago, I, I teach one of the confirmation modules here at St. Paul's on church history, Lutheran history primarily, but we talk about some other portions as well. And a hundred years before Martin Luther, there was a, a guy, a reformer named John Huss. Maybe some of you have heard of him. And John Huss, a hundred years before Luther, was teaching some of the same things that Luther was teaching. And does anybody know what eventually happened to John Huss because he was teaching these things that were designed to reform the church at that time? Burned at the stake, burned alive. Now let me ask you this, and this is the rationale. I say, I say to the kids, doesn't that sound a little harsh? To burn somebody at the stake. Do you know why did they, uh, why would they defend doing that? Here's the defense. They said, if you kill somebody, you're only hurting them physically, bodily. But if you are a heretic, a false teacher, you have the ability through your false teaching to have people condemned for an eternity. And that's why they took it so seriously back then and burned, you know, actually burned them at the same. Of course, we would never even think about doing that today. But that was the argument. That was the rationale given that for false shepherds, you had the ability through your false teaching to lead somebody astray for an eternity. And so that's why the, the penalty was so, was so harsh. And just to end, uh, Luther, you know, uh, he said at one time, he was running around saying that there really wasn't a whole lot of difference between what John Huss was teaching and he was teaching. And his friend, Luther's friends told him, be quiet, <laughs> don't run around saying that. What are you, what are you doing? You know, you're going you're gonna to end up the same way. Uh, but again, unfortunately, down through history, the church has always had false shepherds. 
and uh, unfortunately probably always will. Uh, it will. We are all sinful human beings. And by the way, maybe we should make a distinction here. There's a difference, I, I think you would agree, there's a difference between, let's say I'm up in the pulpit preaching and I make a mistake, I say something that I meant to say one thing and I say another, so I made a mistake. There's a difference between that and somebody comes up later and says, you know, did you say that? I thought, boy, I hope I didn't, I, that would be wrong. So I recognize I was wrong. There's a difference between that and teaching something repeatedly and preaching something repeatedly that is false and being called out for it and continuing to teach something that is false. That's, that's how we define an actual heretic. Someone who is continually teaching something false has been identified, has been brought to their attention, and they continue in the very same way. And that's, again, that's different than somebody who makes a mistake in a sermon or maybe, you know, later on says, oh, I, that was wrong, and, and maybe even publicly says that then to correct that, that error. That's, there's quite a difference there, all right? So anyway, God's going to take things in his hands with, in, in light of his false shepherds in the Old Testament. That's going to happen. Uh, people are going to come back, first of all, from Babylon. He leads them back. He sends Christ, who is the good shepherd, who lays down his life for all of us, the sheep. And, of course, on the last day, Christ will come and gather us from all parts of the world, all parts of the earth. Okay? All right. Any questions or comments before we go on to 1 Corinthians 15? Don? Yeah, the, the question was, it seems odd, and I agree with you, it seems odd that he, he uses David in particular, he uses the name David in particular, uh, when he could have maybe used another phrase or another way of referring to it. I agree. Uh, we know, obviously, it is not David, and so it is the one that is going to be from the house and lineage of David, and yet it is, I, I agree with you, it is uh, an odd way of putting it. Of course, David, if we think back 400 years earlier, that was when Israel was in its heyday. That's when God's people were in still, you know, the United Kingdom under David and then Solomon uh, uh, following that was the great time of prosperity and unity for God's people. And that's what they're looking forward to. Okay, anything else? All right, let's go on to 1 Corinthians 15. And 1 Corinthians 15 is, as I said before, an entire chapter dedicated to the resurrection from the dead. And here is the problem in Corinth. The people in Corinth were believing that Jesus rose from the dead, but they wouldn't believe that anybody else is going to rise from the dead. Kind of a, almost a contradiction in terms. And in other words, they, they are agreeing with the fact that Christ rose from the dead, but they are denying that anybody else physically, bodily, will rise from the dead. By the way, that is uh, probably not cited often enough as another proof for the resurrection of Christ. If you've got people that deny that there's going to be a physical, bodily resurrection, but they say, but we do believe that Christ rose from the dead, that's a pretty strong argument, isn't it, uh, going for the resurrection of Christ. Now, um, let me just read for you verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, which kind of lays out the problem. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There it is right there. Paul is saying, look, this is a contradiction in terms here, okay? Let's take a look and read through. Uh, this is a little shorter lesson, so let's read through this, and then we'll go back and pick up some things from it. Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits... Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. 
for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. I realize it gets a little confusing at the end. This is all this subjection under stuff. We'll get through that. But let's go to the first portion first, which is the great statement, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Um, Paul would be hearkening back, first of all, the fact that Christ is raised from the dead, Paul is asserting here, is not, is not to be disputed. It, it is pure fact. Back earlier in the chapter, he says that Christ, uh, for, he says, uh, this is in verse 3 of, of this chapter, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and here comes the proof, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve, the other disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. We'd like to know where that was. This is the only reference to that, appearing to 500 people at one time, uh, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So again, the post-resurrection appearances of Christ lead Paul to say here, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, that phrase, he says that Christ here is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, let's take the easy part first. Fallen asleep, does that mean the people who uh, fell asleep in the late service? Uh, what's he talking about there? Fallen asleep is a biblical use throughout the Bible to refer to death. Yeah, those who have died. So Christ here is the first fruits of those who have died. Now, to explain this first fruits thing, um, we can go back all the way to Leviticus 23, but it's an agricultural term. And on the, think about the timing of this now. It was that the first fruit, or the first of the harvest, you were, we were to bring the first sheaves of the harvest and offer them to God. Wave, it was a wave offering and it was a way of saying, we're coming up on Thanksgiving here in our country, it was a way of saying that all of this harvest that is still out there, who gets the credit? Who gets the, the praise and thanks for that? God does, right. So you're burning that first sheaf and you're waving it and there is the recognition that this is only the first. There's a whole field out there yet that are multiple fields obviously, that are going to be harvested, okay? Now, guess when, in the Old Testament, we, could, uh, we won't do it now, we could look at Leviticus 23, 10 and 11. Guess when the celebration of the first fruits was to take place? The day after the Sabbath of the Passover festival. So Sunday, after the Sabbath, which for the Jews would have been the Saturday sundown to sundown, a Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, of the Passover. Now stop and think. What is that day for Christians? Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday. It, it, it would become Easter Sunday. It wasn't obviously back in the Old Testament yet. So it's kind of interesting that Christ here is referred to by Paul as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Is he intending to, to draw their mind to the fact that the first fruits festival is on the day Christ rose from the dead? So in a couple of ways, he is the first fruits, isn't he? <laughs> uh, of those, in this case, of those who are dead. So you see the connection here between Christ, who rises first from the dead, and all the rest of us who will rise again, all the dead who will uh, rise. And we've got to say, too, that a lot of what's said here is understood, that 
it's believers uh, that are going to be getting the blessing on that day. Now, verse 21. For as by a man came death. Now, who would be the man by whom death came? Adam, yeah. Adam and the sin uh, that was committed. So there's a comparison here between, and Paul does this elsewhere in the book of Romans in particular, uh, the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam being the Adam who sinned, the second Adam being Christ himself, who undoes, I guess you might say, what the first Adam uh, messed up. So by one man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. Now, when Paul there says, by one man came death, there's two things really, or two ways of looking at that death. There is, first of all, a physical death. Did God, was death even a part of God's creation? Not at all. It was never. Uh, in his original creation, it is only the result of sin that we end up dying physically. But it's even worse than that. There is also the spiritual death that Adam brought about. And that is, again, through sin, an eternal separation from God and his love and his mercy and his grace. That also is the result of sin. And the Bible speaks about that. Paul, for example, says to the Philippians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, is he, is he meaning physical death there? No. They were alive. They had a pulse. They had a heartbeat and so on. He's talking about spiritual death. You were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. So the Bible uses both of those uh, deaths to talk about both of those phenomena. Then, verse 22, notice there, as in Adam all die. Boy, there's a categorical statement, right? You cannot say, well, that for people who think again, that somehow they're going to they're gonna beat the system here somehow. No, all die. Notice, so also in Christ shall all, this is all believers, all who are in Christ, shall be, notice they're made alive, come to life. Verse 23, Christ, you know, there's an order to this. Christ is first, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And belonging to Christ, of course, is through faith. Now, let's go through all this subjection talk here and kind of uh, unscramble this, I guess we would say. Uh, verse uh, 24, then comes the end when he, that would be Christ, delivers the kingdom. So Christ on that last day, basically what we're talking about here, delivering the kingdom, delivering all believers to the Father on that last day. Because again, remember, the dead in uh, Christ, the first fruits, then all who are in Christ rise up. And it's almost like he presents every, everyone, all believers, to the Father. And then um, he, he, uh, comes the end. He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after, notice, destroying every rule and every authority and every power. And there we think of all the evil demons, all the evil uh, spiritual things in this world, principalities and powers, Paul talks about them in other places, that are aligned up against God, against us, against the church, against Christians, all of those are going to be defeated. He defeats all of them. And verse 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's an Old Testament way of speaking of being victorious. It pictures your enemy as under your feet. You know, your foot is on top of them and you're, you're uh, ruling over them. And then verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So under Christ's feet here, all things are in subjection to him. And now Paul says here is sort of a caveat. In other words, all things under Christ's feet, he's basically saying here, that doesn't include the father putting himself under Christ's feet. This is way of, another way of saying this. Uh, when he says there, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. <laughs> so the Father is not putting himself in subjection to Christ here is another way of saying it. It's kind of confusing to go through, to go through and kind of follow and, and keep in mind. Um, and then uh, finally, verse 28, 
when all things are subjected to him, that would be to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And the idea here again is that the Son voluntarily, as he was on this earth, is obedient to the Father and places his own um, desires are, are equal with the Father. It's not saying that Christ is somehow less in his, in his godliness, in his deity, than the Father is. He is simply, remember uh, Paul talked about how Christ here on this earth was obedient uh, to death, even death on a cross. So not his own will, but the Father's will is done. And so that's just another way of saying he voluntarily places himself, Christ does, uh, in service to the Father and the will of the Father. Just another way of saying it there. Okay? But this, um, when you stop and think about it, the resurrection of the dead, we don't know why the Corinthians, some of the Corinthian people did not believe there was a resurrection of the dead. Uh, there's a, the old Greek idea, and we don't know if this was operating in Corinth or not, but the old Greek idea was that what was good inside of you was your soul or your spirit. And the body was just a prison that the soul or the spirit was in. And the purpose of life was to rid the, the soul of the body, to shed that, that old body away, and your spirit would live on, in, and that's the good life-giving part of you. That's obviously not a Christian perspective, because we have great respect for God's creation of the body also. Even though it's been corrupted by sin, and we all have, uh, you know, every day we have examples of that in our lives, but that is not a Christian view. We believe in a physical, bodily resurrection. That on the last day when Christ comes, our bodies will be raised. And elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about our bodies as being incorruptible. In other words, not, no longer corrupted by sin, Right? won't need a hip replacement or any, anything like that. Uh, also as imperishable. So if we go over to uh, Schnooks across the street and we walk in on that uh, western side door, we got a whole section there of things that are called perishables, right? Fruits and vegetables. So what happens if I go back there and they haven't, they haven't changed those out in about a month? How are those going to look? <laughs> Not so good, right? Not so good. Uh, and so imperishable our bodies will. They, we won't be uh, spoiling or aging, you might say. And the best thing, he says also, is that they will be immortal, no longer able to die. We can't imagine a world like that, can we? No more death around us at all. No more sin around us anymore. No more of the impact of sin, the effects of sin, either on us or in others, even physically as well can't imagine that. And we look forward to that day uh, uh, when it comes. And it will come that scripture says that day has been established. It's known only to the Father, but it will come nonetheless. Okay? All right, let's stop here before we go on to Matthew 25. Any uh, comments, questions? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, okay. Great, great question. The question was, what about people who have uh, their, their bodies cremated and they have the ashes spread, let's say, out on the sea or out in a field or, or whatever? Um, again, we would think, I, I don't know what they are thinking when they do that. I, there may be some who do that and don't believe in a resurrection of the dead. But uh, first of all, we'd say that uh, cremation today in... Christian circles is, I, I would say, probably half of the funerals we do now are cremation. That didn't used to be the case. It used to be the case that uh, rarely would uh, there be uh, cremation, but it's, it's gotten more and more popular. I think there are some reasons for that. We would say there's nothing wrong with it. On the last day, think about people who have been lost at sea. Their bodies have never been recovered. Think about people who have uh, burned in a tremendous fire inside a building and their their bodies were never recovered you know they had to had to identify little parts of their bodies and, and that the kind of thing certainly happened on the last day are their bodies going to rise yes yes 
It's not going to be the case that the only people who are going to rise are the ones who are in a casket and in a nice you know, cemetery lot uh, here at St. Paul Cemetery uh, and so on. All flesh will rise, no matter where they are, no matter what has happened to them. The, the God who created our bodies certainly can recreate our bodies, can't he? And make them uh, new once again. So, now, again, there may be some people who are doing that who do, who do not believe in the resurrection, who, who are simply thinking, this is it, I want my ashes thrown out here. That won't change the fact, though, that on the last day their, their body is going to rise. I guess they'll be surprised, uh, and uh, unpleasantly so, uh, on that day. But uh, we, we definitely uh, have always, the Christian church has always taught the physical bodily resurrection on the last day. And that's something that, um, you know, a lot of people probably look at that and say, oh, how can you believe that? Well, Christ rose from the dead. Christ bought three people back from dead, the death, didn't he? Uh, in the last one, Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, and the widow's son, all three of those, Jesus simply demonstrates, he says the word, demonstrates his authority over life and over death, okay? So, anyway, this is the, the thing that we have, obviously, to preach at funerals, and that is the hope that God has given to us, that in the midst of death there is life, and not just spiritually speaking, but physical, bodily life as well, okay? Good, great question. Any others or, or comments? All right, let's finish up then. Let's go to Matthew 25. And this is the famous last day. We've had three weeks in a row now of Matthew. This will be the third week in a row, I should say, of Matthew 25. Remember last week, uh, we had the uh, parable of the ten virgins, the wise and foolish virgins. That was dealing with the second coming of Christ. Today, we've got the, uh, in the gospel lesson, the uh, parable of the talents, and, and the, the master returns. That's, again, a picture of the master or, or Christ coming on the last day. And then we've got today, or for next week, rather, we've got this Matthew 25, where it's clear that Christ re is returning and on the last day, and there's that great separation. All right, let's read through it real quick, and then we'll go back. Verse 31 of Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. Notice that again, there is no exception here. All people are there. There's no, you know, gee, I've got something else to do. Uh, no, all peoples. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Shepherds would do that in Bible times because they'd want to get the goats, which were in many cases, a lot tougher uh, animal and acted tougher against the sheep, they'd separate them. And the sheep are going to be, in this case, the good, and the goats are going to be the bad. Now, I, notice, I want you to notice the order that these things are happening. The judgment has not occurred yet. They are being separated already because of what they are at the point Jesus comes. Everybody see that? When Jesus comes... You're either already a sheep or already a goat. There's no changing over, you know. There's nobody jumping over from one side to the other. You are what you are on the day when Christ comes. Just like last week, remember I said that there is no getting ready for the bridegroom after the bridegroom comes. It's only those who were ready when the bridegroom came that were able to go into the wedding feast. Same thing here. They're separate already. They, 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 Christ hasn't even done any judge, judgment, hasn't pronounced any judgment yet. He's just simply separated them based on what they are when he came. All right? No, 33. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, to the sheep in other words, Come, you who are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Notice that, that this is the kingdom that God intended for us. He prepared it for us from the foundation of the world. 
This is where he destines us to go. To heaven. So come, you are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Uh, and then the evidence of the faith is mentioned here. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous, or the sheep, will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it unto me. All right, let's stop there for a second. We have to be careful here that we don't uh, create what might be called a works righteousness judgment out of this. In other words, notice that he refers to them as righteous ones in verse 37. Uh, and what makes them righteous? What do we know from Scripture? What makes you righteous? Is it the good things you do? No. It's faith and trust in Jesus Christ, isn't it? We are justified. We are pronounced righteous based on faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is giving a statement to here is the evidence of, the, of their faith, the evidence of their righteousness. In other words, they did these things not so that they could become righteous, but as God's righteous people, they naturally did them. So much so that they didn't even think about the fact that they were doing it. They, they, they're going to say, when did, we, when, when did we do this? They simply did it. It's, the, it's what Christians do. I've used before the, the analogy, an apple tree produces apples because it is an apple tree. Not so that it can become an apple tree. It's simply what an apple tree does. And here Jesus is simply giving the evidence of the fact that they are righteous, it's what the righteous do. They do these things, right? And so that, again, I want to make sure we don't fall into that trap because it, it's an easy trap to fall into, you know? And then on the contrast, he's going to say to the, uh, verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed. Notice there, they're already cursed at the point he has come into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice there that eternal fire or hell was not prepared for us. It was prepared for the devil and his angels or his messengers. 42, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. One thing I should have mentioned, up in verse 40, one of the least of these, who? My brothers. And this is a, a, actually quite a large point of interpretation, or I should have mentioned this, that it's not just any old people that Jesus is talking about here. You did it to these my brothers. So uh, m most people take this to mean other Christians, that you did it to the least of these my brothers. And there's a section, we won't look at it now, we don't have the time to look at it now, but uh, there's that section uh, where Jesus is teaching, uh, I think that's Matthew 12, where they say, your mother and your brothers are here, and Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? But basically those who believe in me, those who follow me are my, my mother and brothers, and so on. So we think here he's using pretty much the same language to speak about, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, or my, you know, my disciples, my followers, you did it unto me. And those who are unrighteous or are cursed, would not do those things to the least of those his brothers, okay? 
Okay, a couple of real quick things. Notice here that there's no in-between group. You're either a sheep or you're a goat. Uh, and, and this is repeated throughout the scriptures whenever Jesus especially talks about the final judgment. You're either in one camp or you're in the other. There's no gray area on that last day. And again, the distinction is those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, which is a gift from God, it's been given to us by God, and those who do not, those who have rejected his offer of forgiveness and life through his son, Jesus Christ. So on that last day, the great separation will take place. I was talking with our eighth graders about this uh, last week. I said, just imagine that, that on that day when all people who have ever lived are going to be raised up, physically, bodily raised up. Can't imagine what, that, what that's going to be like. And there will be, again, there will be no avoiding it. There will be no, you know, I've got another commitment. I can't, uh, can't participate. <laughs> you'll, you'll be participating, believe me. You'll be participating. And, and for us, you know, what a great way. All right? All right, we are at the end of time. Any, real quick, any question, any comment? All right, let's close in with a benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.